Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 2.5, New Netherland Becomes New York. Throughout the course of this podcast, we have really spent very little time in New Netherland. We have mentioned it a few times, spending some time there during Kaif's War, plus when they went out and conquered the colony of New Sweden. We stopped by briefly when Anne Hutchinson was killed in the colony. However, beyond that, it really has just been on the periphery of our story. This week, we are going to change that. New Netherland has always been a serious inconvenience for the English. Geographically, it is in the way, driving a literal wedge between the New England colonies and the southern Chesapeake colonies. It also meant that the Dutch had control over the Hudson, as well as one of the better natural ports into colonial America. Control over the Hudson and the all-important port gives the Dutch a distinct advantage over the English in the growing fur trade. Beyond, however, the geographical challenges, New Netherland also was a competitor. Much of North America was still open wilderness, open wilderness that the English wanted to control. The Dutch holding New Netherland gave them an opportunity to make their own land grabs, land grabs that very well may come back to haunt the English. As we had discussed back in episode 1.24, New Netherland had, despite its advantageous location, never really been a huge financial success. The Dutch by the later part of the 1620s had basically stopped pouring money into the colony and pretty much gave up on the place. That, of course, isn't to say that the Dutch just up and left, but they were also not interested in rearranging the deck chairs on what they perceived to be the Titanic either. New Netherland therefore was left, for the most part, to its own devices. That is, up until 1664. Tensions had long been rising between the English and the Dutch. In North America, the Dutch posed an obvious problem to English expansion. As discussed just a moment ago, they were literally wedged in between the New England colonies and the Chesapeake colonies. For the Dutch, this position likely was also tenuous at best. While acting as a physical barrier in between the two quick-growing English colonies was a hindrance for the English, for the Dutch, it meant that they were virtually surrounded by the English. However, that is simply the colonial aspect of the tensions between the two powers. The Dutch had long been growing more and more powerful, especially in regard to their navy, something that by this point was a direct threat to the English. Further souring relations was when Charles II founded the Royal Africa Company. The Dutch had long become established as a leader in the slave trade, a position that they were happy to maintain. Suddenly, however, the English were involving themselves into that very trade. The wars between the English and the Dutch are much more layered and nuanced than this. However, while I could spend the next several episodes moving methodically through the Anglo-Dutch wars, it would be to little end. Most of the war is going to have virtually no effect on the North American colonies, so for the sake of moving the story along, we are going to spend our time only focused on the New Netherland aspect of that war. The final push for war was made by James, the Duke of York. As the younger brother of King Charles II, James certainly had the ear of his brother. Interested in making his own mark in the world, James turned to the New World, and specifically New Netherland, for a place where he could go to grow his own holdings. Charles went ahead and made a land grant and gave the thumbs up for the mission. Now, the big problem with this is pretty obvious. 
New Netherland was already a place where people lived, and it was already being claimed by the Dutch. Yet, this really doesn't seem to dissuade anybody, and on August 18, 1664, a force under the command of Richard Nichols arrived off the coast of New Amsterdam. Along with Nichols was approximately 400 men, as well as several ships. To the north, the English were expecting help from Massachusetts. Now, you may be thinking that this is the part of the podcast where I tell you about the great battle that ensued to capture New Netherland. Truth be told, however, rather than a battle, the Dutch just basically gave an exaggerated shrug and welcomed their new overlords. The fortifications around the colony were largely incomplete. The Dutch only had about 150 fighting men, and nobody was really super excited about being slaughtered by the English. With no interest in a fight, the Dutch just went ahead and surrendered. John Winthrop Jr. was called in to help come up with the conditions of the surrender, and for the most part, he gave kind terms. Dutch property was given protections, the Dutch could leave unmolested should they choose to do so, and they were allowed to practice their own inheritance rights. Also, importantly, one of the conditions that existed that is going to cause some future friction is that it was agreed that the English would not impress the Dutch. Impressment is where a person is forced into military service and made to fight for a nation impressing them. It can be thought of as a more brutal form of conscription. Whereas conscription has rules, impressment generally was a simple, we captured you and now you fight for us. We are going to spend a lot of time talking about policies of impressment in approximately 1 million episodes from now when we start talking about the War of 1812. For now, however, the Dutch were, on the surface, told that they were not going to be required to take up arms for the English. With New Amsterdam now under his control, Nichols turned his attention to making sure that he had control of the rest of the New Netherlands. Sending a smaller force to capture Delaware from the Dutch, they found the same resigned acceptance to the English arrival. For the remaining Swedish settlers in Delaware, it must have felt like some kind of cosmic retribution. If you recall, just a decade before the Dutch had conquered the colony of New Sweden, and now they themselves were being pushed out. With the Dutch having no interest in a fight, Nichols went ahead and named his new lands for the Duke, who had given him his command in the first place. And that would be the Duke of York. From now on in our story, New Netherlands will be New York. Naturally, after capturing the colony, the next step in the process was going to be establishing local English government. The Duke of York early on made the decision that he wanted to sell off part of the territory. This was likely for a few reasons. First, the land grant that James had received from the king was relatively large. By cutting part of that off, he would be more able to control a colony, which may not be crazy about the new English incursion. Secondly, it was a way that James could make a quick buck. Colonies were expensive and often ran deep in the red. Those shares which were sold off to John Berkeley and Sir George Carteret would ultimately end up becoming the lands that make up modern-day New Jersey. Nichols set out to install laws that would function in such a way that he would integrate happily with the existing Dutch law, rather than simply replace it. The last thing that Nichols wanted to do was something that would anger the Dutch. Well, the English had an easy military advantage, they were also not looking to invite civil unrest. Where this really manifests itself is in religious matters. Intelligently deciding that shoving everybody into the Anglican church might be a bad idea, the colony was largely given the right to continue to worship as they pleased. 
Now, this was always going to be within reason and probably shouldn't be confused as being religious freedom. The religious rights, for example, only really applied as long as the religion being followed was Christianity. Beyond that, what grew legally out of the colony largely followed the Massachusetts model, which follows as John Winthrop Jr. had been so involved in brokering the peace. The death penalty was liberally applied to a wide variety of charges, including homosexuality, adultery, bestiality, murder, and conspiring against the colony. New York, in this way, had their laws designed not only to protect against criminal acts, but also manage the morality of the colony. Where New York did differ from the other colonies is that it was not given an assembly, as had become the norm elsewhere in the North American English colonies. This would become a sticking point in the region, especially for those in Long Island. Long Island had previously been part of Connecticut. However, it had been ceded to New York during the transfer of power between the Dutch and the English. This means that the settlers in Long Island had gone from being represented by an assembly to being denied representation, something that did not exactly thrill them. Long Island did make overtures that they wanted to return to the rule of Connecticut. However, New York was not interested in letting them go. These problems would last well past the governorship of Nichols, as they would also affect his replacement, Francis Loveless. While the colony was struggling along, the outbreak of the Third Anglo-Dutch War would throw a serious wrench into the plans. The Dutch turned their attention towards New York and realized that they probably had plenty of Dutch settlers in the colony who would be more than happy to overthrow the oppressive English forces. In 1672, the Dutch attacked English tobacco traders off the coast of New York. They would make an actual landing in Delaware, where they were able to quickly retake several of their prior holdings. For the next two years, what emerged was a brief resurgence of Dutch rule in New York and Delaware. However, when the death settled and a peace was reached in 1674, New York was officially ceded to the English. This is the final time that the Dutch would challenge English hegemony in the region. With New York now firmly in the hands of the English, attention was shifted from securing the colony to figuring out how to govern it. Both Nichols and his successor Francis Loveless struggled to get control of a, if not hostile population, a population that was largely apathetic towards English rule. For this job, the Duke of York turned to Edmund Andros. Edmund Andros is going to become an absolute fixture in the late 17th century colonial life. He is going to appear time and time again all throughout the colonies. By the time that he dies in 1714, he will have served as the governor of New York, New England, Virginia, and Maryland. So yeah, spoiler alert, this guy is going to get around. I had given some thought to doing a biography episode for Andros, but ultimately decided against it. However, in place, he is going to get a much more thorough introduction than most. So without further delay, let's bring Edmund Andros into our story. Born in 1637, Andros would enter a world on the verge of the English Civil Wars. As was the case for so many men of that era, Andros was raised under the backdrop of that war and it would help shape his future. Prior to the war, Edmund's father had been appointed the Master of Ceremonies. The result of this is that despite the family's home being on the island of Guernsey, Edmund Andros was born and raised in London. Normally, being born into a position such as being the son of the English Master of Ceremonies would have afforded a man like young Edmund Andros a privileged upbringing. Of course, we know that these are not normal times. Andros was still a child when the English Civil Wars broke out. However, as you know, 
Being loyal to House Stuart during the 1640s was a dangerous proposition. Returning to their home island of Guernsey at the outbreak of the war, the Andros family found little reprieve. The island was mostly loyal to the parliamentary forces, which meant that the Andros family stood as outcasts. The Andros family would remain on Guernsey for a time, though it was unclear exactly when they left. We know that his father was still on the island defending it for royal forces past the time of Charles I's death. Ultimately, however, it was too captured by Cromwell in 1651. By 1651, the Andros family had pretty well gotten the hint and followed the Stuarts into exile, and had settled near The Hague in the Netherlands. Now, there are a couple of important things to note here. First, the Andros family as a whole remained staunchly in line with the Stuarts. Following the former and future royal family into exile, the relationship between Andros and the future Charles II were strongly bound. Second, for the young Edmund Andros, his life had been shaped by the war. More specifically, however, growing up in a family that was so strictly monarchist, he undoubtedly would have viewed the parliament as being the proverbial bad guys. The first English Civil War began when he was just five years old. The family finally went into exile in 1651, when Andros would have been just 14 years old. This means that for him, his entire life, his entire life, from young childhood through his teen years, would have been spent under the backdrop of war, followed by years he would spend as an immigre as a result of those wars. This is something that was undoubtedly going to shape Andros's worldview and is something to keep in mind as we look at his relationship with the American settlers, especially when we deal with those up in New England. Following a childhood under the backdrop of war, it isn't a huge surprise that Andros would choose a military career. Becoming a cavalry officer, Andros would train under his uncle, Sir Robert Andros. Serving under the command of Prince Henry of Nassau, Andros was involved in the war that saw the Dutch defeat Swedish forces under Charles X. By the end of the conflict in 1658, Andros was a 21-year-old man who had experienced European continental fighting. He had proven to be a brave soldier and was well-liked by his men. His time in exile also meant that he was skilled in languages, speaking English, Dutch, Swedish, and French. The world for Edmund Andros would radically change in 1660, when the Restoration returned Charles II to the throne. While the fall of the Stuarts had been a devastating blow for the Andros family, it was now assumed that their continued loyalty to the monarch would be rewarded. Sure enough, for the first time in a decade, the Andros family was able to head home. The people on the island selected Andros's father to head to the king and ask his forgiveness for that whole civil war thing. The king predictably accepted, making sure to single out the Andros family for the continued and courageous service that they had provided. Edmund Andros in 1662 would join under Sir John Talbot and become a member of the king's personal guard. Charles II was always looking outside of England and was interested in overseas expansion and the growth of the empire. During his reign, there is an expansion of the navy, both to protect the home islands and expand the empire plus to help ensure that nobody in England got any more ideas as they did during the 1640s. It is during this period of expansion that Charles II created the Royal Africa Company, which was instigating that war with the Dutch and ultimately is the method whereby New Netherland became New York. 
For Edmund Andros, this overseas vision held by Charles II would end up not just being life-altering, but would rather become defining for the man. The war against the Dutch would mark the first time that Andros would travel to the New World, though his target was not New Netherland. Under the command of Richard Nichols, Andros was a member of an expedition that traveled first to the Isle of Wight, where they protected it against Dutch and French invasion. Rather than incursion from the outside, Andros found himself dealing with uprisings from the inside. Despite this, however, Andros again proved himself in battle and successfully quelled the unrest. Next, Andros was promoted to the position of a major in the Barbados Regiment. Traveling to the West Indies, Andros would once again prove himself to be a brave and capable leader. Andros would hop through the islands, restoring them to order and making sure they remained loyal to the English crown. His time in the West Indies was critical for the young Andros. He had been given a command of a difficult job. Fighting in the Indies remained a hard task. Disease was rampant, loyalties were often suspect, and being so far away from home often led to dangerous breakdowns in discipline. However, for Andros, he remained firm in his dedication to the Stuarts. Not only did he regain control over the near-rebellious colonies, but he made clear that the English crown was still the power that controlled everything. Likewise, this campaign gave Andros an opportunity to try his hand at ensuring that colonial governance was working as intended. Not only was Andros a good leader of men, but he had now proven himself as a capable administrator and a skilled diplomat. When Andros returned to England in 1668, he was popular both with Charles II and his brother James, the Duke of York. Spending the next several years back in London, Andros turned his attention to his personal life. In 1672, Andros married Maria Craven, the niece of the Earl of Craven. This was an advantageous match for Andros, and as a wedding present, he was presented with 48,000 acres of land. Andros had little time to celebrate his marriage, as shortly thereafter the Third Anglo-Dutch War broke out. Though not directly involving Andros, as we discussed earlier during the Third Anglo-Dutch War, the Dutch were able to reclaim most of what they had lost in North America. For Governor Lovelace, this was an outright disaster. He left the Americas in disgrace following the loss, and after a short stint in the Tower of London, Lovelace died. During the subsequent Treaty of Westminster in 1674, England regained control over New York. With New York back under English control, the job fell to the Duke of York to select a new governor for the colony. Edmund Andros made a logical choice for this spot. Andros had fought the Dutch for years and was familiar with continental warfare practices. He had fought in the West Indies and he had become familiar with colonial warfare practices as well. He was a polyglot, speaking all the languages that would really matter in the region. His fluency in Dutch meant that he could easily communicate with the now former Dutch settlers in the area. His ability to speak French allowed him to communicate with the French fur traders coming into the region to sell their goods. Finally, being able to speak Swedish means that he would be important in Delaware, where the Swedes still did hold some influence. Time and time again, Andros would prove himself to be well-liked by his men, and he was a brave fighter, a good leader, and had proven to be both a skilled administrator and diplomat. Most importantly, however, Andros was, to his very core, a strict monarchist. Charles II could rest easy at night knowing that Edmund Andros was nearly the last person who would ever abandon him. 
With the memory of the English Civil Wars and the death of Charles I, loyalty still meant a lot in this world. Andros was a company man, and nothing was going to ever change that. In an interesting twist, right after the appointment of Andros to the royal governorship of New York, his father died. Andros now found himself as the bailiff of his home island of Guernsey, a position that his father had previously held. We get some interesting insight into Andros here, and something that I'm going to recommend you store away for a while. The position of bailiff basically meant that Andros now had power over sentencing those who had been found guilty of crimes. This was a job that the locals back on Guernsey really didn't like having Andros do. Andros would routinely give down harsh punishments in this position, often to the detriment of the elites on the island. During this period, Andros routinely found himself being accused of being arbitrary in his position and imposing sentences that were overly harsh. Andros's main prerogative here was to strengthen the position of the king, so the locals who quipped about his heavy hand were often just ignored. This is a bit of foreshadowing for events that are going to come into play in the future. If you recall from last season, in New England, there were regular complaints about arbitrary government. It was something that they cared deeply about, avoiding, and were always hypervigilant looking for it. A governor such as Andros, a man who was a monarchist to his core and had already been accused of being arbitrary, being pledged into a New England that bristles against such things, seems like it is going to be a bad mixture. And indeed, as we are going to see, it goes about as well as you would expect. Well, being the bailiff of Guernsey wasn't a terrible gig. It was one that was never going to be something that Andros did for very long. His future was across the Atlantic. Andros, after establishing his authority, named his uncle Charles Andros as the chief deputy and put him in charge. With that, Andros packed up his bags and set sail for New York. Edmund Andros is going to be many things to many people, and his reputation is largely going to depend on who you are asking. In England, Andros was seen as a popular figure who did exactly what the job entailed. Namely, he enforced the will of the king. His conduct in wars was stellar. He was brave and he was a good leader. His men liked him. In the colonies, however, his legacy is much different. Whereas for the king, he was loyal to his core. For the colonists that were made to be subject to him, he was seen as being an absolutist and was often accused of being something of a tyrant. In places such as Virginia, where he was the governor from 1692 until 1698, he is largely remembered as being an unpopular leader who was characterized by inflexibility. On the other hand, in New England, the guy is on par with a Marvel supervillain. He was a despised figure whose reputation is nothing short of bringing tyranny to New England. In Connecticut, they still refused to list Andros as ever being the governor, even though he was. Andros is going to be a part of our story for a long time moving forward, and we are going to have plenty of chances to explore why the colonists in New England hated his guts so much. I'm sure that following his final departure from North America, I will have much more to say regarding the legacy of Edmund Andros. When Andros departed for New York, he was sent along with 100 soldiers at his disposal, as well as two warships. Mostly men from the Barbados expedition, these men were there to help keep order and ensure that the Dutch didn't attempt another comeback. The English viewed New York as a highly strategic location, 
and saw it as being critical to the English colonial ambitions. The 100 men were there to make sure that nobody decided to mess with the English colonial ambitions. As had been the case previously under Francis Lovelace, Andros did not bring with him any kind of charter. Rather, the colony was to remain highly centralized, with the power resting in their governor. And although Andros did have a 10-man council around him, there was no question that all authority flowed directly through him. Andros arrived in New York on October 22, 1674, landing near Staten Island. The first order of the day was going to be regaining control over the colony. Though authority had been ceded to the English by the Dutch, there was nobody there to take up the mantle. Lovelace had already gone home in disgrace. This means that upon arrival, the colony had to officially be handed over to Andros. This went largely without a hitch, though the Dutch did want to be sure that, as part of the surrender, the Dutch remaining in the colony were going to be protected against impressment. After all, the English and the Dutch just wrapped up their third war. Should there be a fourth, the Dutch didn't want the English to impress Dutch citizens to attack them. Andros further promised that the Dutch would receive the same privileges as the English in the colony, and they would not be discriminated against. Satisfied, the Dutch officially surrendered the colony on October 31st, 1674. When New York was turned over to Andros, he inherited a colony that was somewhere in the range of 10,000 colonists. The largest city, New York, was a small outpost of about 1,500 people on the tip of Manhattan. The colony was not valued for the large number of colonists, but as we discussed was in a critical position for the colonies in general. It provided a large natural harbor and inland access via the Hudson. With New York now completely under the control of Andros and the English, the task of the day turned towards getting order over the city and ensuring that it ran like the well-oiled machine that Andros intended. However, that is a story that I'm going to save for our next episode. Next time, we are going to return to New York for another episode and look at the years of leadership under Edmund Andros. We will see him establish himself as the leading force in the colony, as well as see the colonists begin to bristle under his often strict command. This is the part of the episode where I tell you all to have a wonderful two weeks before our next episode. However, with the current global pandemic, that just felt like a weird thing to say this week. So instead, for the next two weeks, let's focus on staying healthy and staying safe. We are all going to get through this. With that, I will see you back here in two weeks' time, and we will explore New York under the command of Edmund Andros. <laughs>